Good morning, everyone. Um, as usual, now is the time for us to uh, dismiss the Redeemer kids so all children four to six uh, can go with Mike and Angela. Um, Mike, what are you guys going to be learning about today? Okay, okay. Um, when you guys are ready, you can get going. I uh, know that we'll be praying for you guys as you leave. Um, yeah, uh, we're going to do that. We're going to pray for them, and then we're going to pray, pray for our time together this morning as well. So if you would, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just sang about how Christ is our solid rock. Uh, God, how true that is. Um, Lord, he is our firm foundation. He is um, our refuge, our truth, our strength. He is so many things for us. And I pray that for the children, uh, that they, as they're learning uh, this morning from your word, from, from your scriptures, that they would uh, learn just a little bit more, at least, about how Christ is their solid rock. I pray that they would grow in their appreciation and awe of him, and they would incline their hearts to him. Um, God, I pray the same thing for us today as well, too. As we look at your scripture uh, now, God, help us to uh, enjoy you, enjoy Christ. Uh, help our vision of you to, clear, to clarify, to become brighter, to become clear. Uh, help us to see and know you better so that we would enjoy you more deeply. God, we want to know you well. We want to enjoy you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start with our scripture reading uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 16. Uh, if you would turn there in your Bibles now. Um, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 453. So you can turn there quickly. Uh, I'll give you guys just a moment to, to flip there um, before I start reading it. Uh, I just want to let you know I am... This is probably the sermon that I'm most excited to preach. I love this passage. I love preparing it, and um, I'm just so excited to look at it with you guys this morning. So um, let me start reading Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Quick history lesson. In 1643, um, the Westminster Assembly of Divines began, and it would actually go on, it would continue on for a full decade until 1653. 
And if you're not, if you're not really familiar with what the Westminster Assembly was, um, it was an assembly of pastors and theologians um, in Britain. They were appointed by the English Parliament at the time as a means of reforming the Church of England. Now, many of the Puritan leaders at the time were members of Parliament, and they feared that the Church of England was forsaking the authority of Scripture and returning to more Catholic traditions. Um, the assembly, therefore, was composed of many of those great Puritan minds uh, to accomplish a number of things uh, during the 1640s and early 1650s in their efforts to reform the church, as I said. So they did a couple of things. They created the Westminster Confession. They created a liturgical manual for the churches to use. Uh, they created a document describing the church's new form of government. Uh, and they also created the, both the larger and shorter Westminster catechisms. Now, today, the confession, the Westminster uh, Confession and the catechisms are considered to be two of the greatest works outlining Reformed Orthodoxy that we still have today. Um, in fact, uh, the Baptist Catechism that we use, um, the one that our children's uh, catechism is, is based off of, is itself based off of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, of course, uh, because that's more Presbyterian leanings, there are a couple differences uh, of view that we have, but for the most part, we are very much aligned with the Westminster Catechism. And I bring this up because the first question in it, I think, is, first of all, is very well known, and rightfully so. And I think it is especially, at this time of the year, poignant for us to be thinking about. This time of the year, the start of the new year, is when uh, we all at least take a little bit of time to reflect back on the past year and use that reflection to motivate us on the year to come. We look back at what has happened and we hope for what is to come. And that's a good and right thing for us to do. If you have a New Year's resolution, I think that's a good thing. I think you should pursue that. I think you should seek to fulfill that. I think you should uh, hold to that commitment. We should take time to pause and evaluate and cast vision for the future every once in a while. And what better time of the year to do that than right now? So let's, let's do that. Let's hope to move forward to achieve more things and to grow. Now, the question then becomes, what should our lives be moving forward towards? What goals should we have to grow in and what things do we want to improve on? Again, those are excellent questions to have, and we should be asking ourselves them. And so that's why when I was thinking about what passage to preach on for this sermon, I was thinking about those questions. What should we, as Redeemer Church, be resolved for, for this new year? And I couldn't think of any better passage to preach on than Psalm 16. And that's because, getting back to the catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the first question gives us an idea of how we should be resolved. Now, I'm actually going to ask for uh, participation from the audience. Does anyone know what the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is? Jamie? Hmm? Not quite. It's okay. The question is, what is the chief end of man? Does anyone know what the answer is? guessing since no one said the question, they probably don't know the answer. But Keith? Exactly. Yes. The chief, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
I love how the Westminster Divines phrase that. It's extremely eloquent, it's very, but it's also very simple, and it sums up the Christian life very, very well. They're so right. In other words, our chief, our primary goal in life should be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're created to do. That's what we were designed for. It's what our purpose is. So with that said, I chose Psalm 16 to preach on because I want us to, to see and to do that as a church. Redeemer Church, I want you to be resolved this year and every single year following to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the reality is, as I've been reflecting on that, I think that our tendency is to remember the first part of that answer more so, but to kind of forget or at least belittle the second part. I am so proud of this church. Honestly, I am so proud of the way that you guys think deeply and intentionally about how to glorify God in your lives. I see that in the conversations we have together. I see that in the prayer requests that you have and the ways that you pray. I see that in the efforts you put forth to be obedient to Christ's commandments. Keep that up. But also, as we start this new year, I want us all to work together to enjoy God more fully. Can we do that? It's what we're meant to do. The Christian life is meant to be a life of enjoyment. Yes, it's a life of bearing our crosses, of repentance, of fighting hard against sin and suffering. But we must not forget that our strength to do that, our strength to persevere in those things, is our joy in God. Joy is meant to be our fuel in the Christian life. Joy is how we're able to bear our crosses, to repent and fight against sin, to endure trials and suffering. I would argue that we cannot do any of those things effectively if we're not enjoying God. And David gets this. Man, does David get this in this psalm. Psalm 16 amazingly articulates this idea. In the face of trial and death, David is rejoicing. In the face of difficulty, he is confident and hopeful. In the face of disappointment, he is deeply satisfied. And David is able to do all that because he does not treat God as some idea to believe or some law system to obey, but he treats him as a personal Lord who loves him and who he loves in return. He treats him as a person who knows him and who he gets to know. David sees God for who he rightly is, and David relishes the experience. David's hope rests on God himself, and he yearns to behold him. David's affections are for him. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement that this God, this creator of the universe exists, but it's an affection. It's an emotional connection with him. In the midst of hardship, God is not just an idea to hold on to. He's a Lord and Savior that he runs to. And that's what it means to enjoy God. That is what, it, what I want us to do and to pursue together as a church. Let's be people who genuinely have affection for God. Let's savor his company and his presence in a real and personal and intimate way like a husband and a wife yearn for each other, like two friends look forward to the next time that they get to spend together. I want your relationship with God to look that way. That's what the Christian life is. It's a relationship. It's not an obedience system. 
David exemplifies that for us in this psalm. Now, he does that because of the vision that he has of God, the way that he sees him. And so we want to let David guide us in having a clear vision of God in this passage. In a sense, we all see God through a haze. Even David did. His vision's not 20-20, but at least his vision is oftentimes better than ours, at least definitely in this passage. So let's let him clear that haze up for us a bit. My prayer for you is that your vision of God would become clearer, sharper, and far more vibrant than it already is. And in turn, you would enjoy him more deeply. That you would get to know God um, for the sake of enjoying him. And David's point in this psalm is this. Live joyfully with God, knowing that he will eternally satisfy you in both body and soul. So let me repeat that. Live joyfully that God know live joyfully with God knowing that he will eternally satisfy you in both body and soul. We're going to see how that's true by considering how David found joy in trusting God as four things, his refuge, his inheritance, his counselor, and his delight. So we're going to look at each of those things in the, in the coming minutes. But before we do that, I do have a quick request of you this morning. I know many of you like to take notes on Sunday mornings. I think that's great. I think that's fine. And do not hear me saying this next part as a suggestion that you should never do that anymore. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want to encourage you, at least just for this one Sunday, to consider not taking notes. Here's why. When you're sitting down for coffee with a friend or you're getting to know someone new, when they're telling you about their job or whether they like cats and dogs or whatever information about their life that they're sharing with you, do you take notes? Do you write that down in a notepad or are you writing up an outline about who they are on your computer? No, of course not. I hope you don't do that. If someone was doing that with me, I would be looking at them very confused and I'd probably honestly be offended. But, but no, we don't do that. If someone is sharing about themselves with you, when you're sitting with them, you're talking with them, you're learning about them, you sit and listen as they share about themselves. You take in what the person is saying and you let it shape your mental understanding of who they are. You get to know them by listening and you establish a deeper connection with that person. You're not just trying to accumulate a bunch of facts about some historical figure that you're gonna take a quiz on later. So for today, let's do that with God. Let's not treat this time as a time to accumulate facts or just knowledge about God so that we can reiterate it later. Let's sit in his company and just learn about him. Let's appreciate what he's sharing with us. His word is him revealing himself to us after all. David is the one writing, but the spirit of God is using David's words as his own voice as well. So as he talks to us and shares about, about, about himself, let's simply listen, take it in, and get to know him better. I'm not even going to put my points on the screen. I shared them, but you're not going to see anything up there for this sermon because I don't want you to pay attention to that. I want you to just learn about God. And again, I want you to do that because I want you to enjoy him. So with that said, let's begin looking at Psalm 16. Let's get back to verse 1. Um, notice how David starts off this psalm. 
He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David needs preserved, he says. He starts off right off the bat with saying that. He needs protected, he needs sheltered. He is calling out to God to shield him from whatever it is that could potentially harm or even kill him in this situation. Um, we don't necessarily know exactly what situation he's facing, um, but it's not hard to believe that whatever it was, it was serious and life-threatening. If you think about it, it's kind of unbelievable how often David's life was threatened. Um, even just if we just look at scripture, for years he faced almost constant threats to his life, whether it was from Saul, Israel's enemies, even his own children threatened his life. He was a man familiar with life and death situations. And it was from within one of those situations that David wrote this psalm. But notice how David phrases his cry to, cry to God. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is qualifying his request. He's requesting that he be preserved, um, but he's asking, and he's got, asking God to protect him, but he's giving a reason why God should do that. That's what the for is for. He's saying, God, protect me because I am seeking shelter in you. David expects God to protect him because he is moving towards God in safety and for safety. This tells us a lot about what he knows of God. God is a God who protects those who depend on him. He shelters those who seek him. He does not turn away from those who need him. He is not a God who, he's not a king who, in a sense, like only willingly grants um, just a few worthy souls in access to his throne room. He doesn't only just allow a couple people to approach him. He gives everyone access to him as long as they seek him. The problem is not God's willingness to help us, but it's our stubbornness in asking for his help and assistance. You can approach God as your God who is always listening, always ready to help and provide whatever you need. He is your constant refuge if you seek him. You need only rely on him. His support might come in an unexpected way. It might not come as you intended or wanted, but it will always come, just at the right time and just in the right way, even if we struggle to understand that for ourselves at moments. Doesn't that reality make you want to draw closer to him? Imagine you have someone else like that in your life, someone who is unwaveringly loyal, someone who always knows the exact way to help and always provides that help. They don't just know it, but they actually do it for you. They're always there. They never fail to help you and to protect you and support you. Um, they're always seeking your best, even when you don't even know what's best for you yourself. He always knows. That, that friend always cares for you perfectly. Wouldn't you want to befriend that person? Wouldn't you want to have a close relationship with that person? Wouldn't you want them always in your life? Wouldn't you appreciate such a friend or loved one? We enjoy people like that. We want their company. Know that you have that person in God. Look with me at verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. It is no surprise to me that David delights in the saints. 
Think about it. The saints are those who follow God, those who are holy and exhibit his character. If we reflect even just a little bit, if we reflect even just a little bit God's protective, loving character, if we exhibit that ourselves, we are going to be drawn towards one another. We're going to want to share in each other's company. We're going to want each other in each other's lives. Plus, David wants to be around people like that because they remind him about who God is and how loving and glorious he is. He wants to be reminded of God's steadfast love and ever-present protection in his life. And the saints in the land are going to be those that remind us of that. They were the ones who reminded him, and he delighted in their company. On the other hand, those who turn to idols, those who trust in things other than God, will be disappointed and are disappointing, as verse 4 shows. Look with me at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David wants nothing to do with these people. He knows they can offer him no true help or support. They think putting their hope in other things will protect them even better than if they just put their hope in God, but it won't. They will be overcome inevitably. Even if it doesn't come until judgment day, even if it doesn't come until God returns, it will come. We, we should take David's warning and follow in his pattern here. We should not just simply surround ourselves with people who are like that. We should not surround ourselves with people who encourage us to find our security in money or a certain job or that one specific relationship with that person that we like. Make God your refuge. He will preserve you. And don't just believe that intellectually. Let your affection for him grow knowing that that's true, knowing that he is utterly capable of preserving you. With no one else can you feel such security, such safety, such freedom from fear. We have everything to fear if we trust in something or someone other than God. But we have nothing to fear if our trust is in him. He will carry the weight of your difficult marriage. He will lead you through the crippling depression that you fear you will never escape. He will help you kill that sin that is overtaking you. Depend on him. He alone can shoulder that responsibility and lead you and strengthen you through that. Cry out to him as David is in this passage. And know that David's trust in such significant moments as this life or death situation doesn't just appear. It's refined. It's cultivated over time as he trusted God with smaller and seemingly more mundane trivialities and trials in life. Do you ever, for instance, stop and think that as you're like driving somewhere that the reason that you were able to arrive at your destination safely was only because of God's preservation, only because God allowed that. Something as simple as a drive can remind you that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, that he is our protection. So remind yourself, use those moments, those seemingly mundane moments, to remember that God is our refuge, that he can be trusted and sought after. And that'll strengthen you and increase your resolve so that you can depend on him when life gets really bleak and really hard. David wanted protected, 
um, that his life might continue. But notice that he's doing that so that he could receive even more. And we see that in how God treats him, how he views God as his inheritance. So look with me at verses five and six. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What does David want? He wants God as his portion, his cup, and his inheritance. David views God as his greatest and most precious gift, so he treasures him as such. The language that David is using here might seem kind of obscure to us. We don't use these types of terms very often, but he's using it to refer to earthly possessions and property. For instance, the lines that he's referring to in verse 6 are the property lines that divided the land of Israel between the different families. Um, David is saying, in a very literal and earthly sense, that he was blessed with a lot of property and a lot of things. And that makes a whole lot of sense because he was the king of Israel. He was the richest, most wealthy man in the kingdom. But David, so David is speaking to that, but he's speaking to something even more than that too. He acknowledges his earthly wealth, but he sees something even greater, of greater worth than that. Look with me back at verse two. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That is how we know that David is not merely talking about what God has given him. Yes, his lines, the earthly allotments and properties that he has are vast and they're truly incredible, comparatively speaking, with other people. But David says himself that he has no good apart from God, nothing apart from him. That is why he has made the Lord his portion and his cup. It is God who holds his law after all. In other words, he knows that everything that has happened to him is ultimately ordained by God. He has nothing good that he did not receive from God himself. He did not obtain it just for himself in his own power, in his own merit, in his own strength. It was a gift from God. And notice that David does not disregard the gifts of God. He does not feel guilty for having them. He does not reject the earthly wealth because God is his portion in his cup. Yes, God is his, his portion in his cup, but he still acknowledges the wealth that God has bestowed him. It doesn't have to be an either or. David uses the good things of earth that he has to remember how good God is to him. He uses the earthly gifts that God has given him to appreciate God as his inheritance even more. He uses those earthly things to esteem God in his eyes even more. It doesn't hinder that. It doesn't steal from it. He uses it to promote his desire for God. He's able to value those things and appreciate them while also realizing that he could have all the kingdoms and wealth in the world. But if he does not have God, it is worthless. It is pointless to have. God is the treasure of infinite worth that David prizes above all else. So how about you? Do you think about God's worth and greatness and the fact that you can have an intimate and personal relationship with him? He... We get so excited to talk about our connections to celebrities or important figures in society, but what about God? I mean, think about it. If, if I was friends with like, some big-name celebrity or some like, big political figure or something like that, if I knew the president, 
I would want people to know that. I would want people that I have that connection. Like, we, we, we like to share that with people. We like to know that we're connected to someone of importance, someone of value and worth. But how often do we view our relationship and connection with God in that way? How often do we just get excited about the fact that we have a relationship with the vast, incomparable, powerful king and creator of the entire universe? There is no more worthwhile relationship that we can have to pursue than the relationship that we have with God. Make him your portion and your cup. Prize him as your greatest treasure, and he will give you a taste of how incredible and precious he really is. David wrote this psalm with those eyes, even amidst great danger and peril to himself. Go to God asking for the same sight, the same vision of him. When things aren't going your way, do you question God or do you rejoice that you still at least have him? David was going through incredible trials at this time, but he did not let those eclipse his view of God. Instead, he used that as an opportunity to cling and to turn to God even more tightly. Is is God truly your treasure or do you yearn for more than him? The life of a saint is only to be truly enjoyable if you see that your satisfaction and contentment is in God, even when your earthly circumstances are horrible, that you can still be content and satisfied in him. When you deal with chronic health issues, as some of you do, if you have a boss that you don't get along with and he makes your life miserable at work every single day, if you're single and you wonder if you're never going to be married, if you have children that you seek to raise with grace and wisdom, but they never seem to obey or want to follow you or the Lord, when you're facing those trials, those could be lifelong trials. If your trust is not in God, if your, if your treasure is not him, your chance of happiness is just going to be cut off. But if your trust and your treasure is in him, you can be content and satisfied even amidst those difficulties. But even with that said, it's easy to think of God as an object, though, even as we think of him as our inheritance. Um, But David goes on to show how personal God is, how relational he is when he praises him as his counselor, which we'll look at next. So look with me at verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So in this term, in in verse 7, he's saying, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. It's not as though he's blessing God and giving him something that he doesn't already have. The term bless is meant to, to convey praise. He's praising God that he gives him counsel because he counsels him. God provides him guidance and direction and comfort when he seeks him. David loves to think of God and what God has revealed to him, so much so that it consumes his thoughts at night. He likes to recount the teachings that he had read or learned about that day. That's why we see even his heart instructs him in the night, in the second half of verse 7. He just can't get enough of biblical truths, of learning about who God is and what he has done. Just stop and think for a moment, though, about how incredible it is 
that we have a God who actually gives us counsel. He actually talks to us. He talks with us. We are looking at his very words to us right now when we're looking at Psalm 16. He is not a cold and distant God who leaves his people with little to no knowledge of himself. He's not that God. He tells us exactly what we need to know so that we can understand his character, his actions, and his promises and commitments to us. He provides us guidance in what is right and wrong so that we can obey and follow him well. And he even gives us reasons why those things are good and right and what things are wrong. But even more, it goes so much deeper even than the words on this page. Even if we had this, that would be incredible. But it goes even further. He has promised and given us, given us his spirit so that we can rightly understand these words, so that they can impact and change us. They change our hearts. Not even David was indwelt with the spirit as we are today. The, the promised Holy Spirit that we have now. If all we had was the law, then we would have to change ourselves to even want to obey it and to follow it. If, if we were given these words to learn about God, we would have to change ourselves to even want to know about him. But we're incapable of that. And so God not only gives us those truths, he teaches us about himself, but he changes our hearts so that we can yearn for him, so that we want to learn, so that we can obey, and that we can have a relationship with him. Without God's counsel in both word and spirit, we would all be dead in our sin because we would want to have nothing to do with him. But he counsels us in such a way that we are changed for the better, changed utterly from who we once were. We were once dead and we are made alive by his counsel. Take a moment, for instance, to consider the confidence and comfort we are afforded because we have the God of the Bible rather than the God of the Quran as our counselor. The God of the Bible tells that his character and nature are immutable. They are unchanging, in other words, um, his ultimate will is always the same, and his expectations of us never change. His commitments and promises will not fail. We can know that we are saved by faith. We can know that God's love for us will never falter or diminish. The God of the Quran, though, provides no such clarity. His character and will changes such that Muslims can never actually know with confidence whether they will be saved or face judgment. They don't know. They can't. All they can do is live the best lives that they can and hope for the best. That is no way to live. That is not the way that God wants us to live. It breaks my heart to know that people live that way when the true and living God wants us to have assurance and confidence in our salvation. We have a God to enjoy and trust, whereas other gods, such as the God of the Quran, is to be feared. Doesn't that encourage you that we have such a God and counselor? God's word is a relief and a comfort and peace to David, just like it should be to us. Look with me at verse eight. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. As verse eight says, David knows that if he inclines himself to God and his word, then he will not be shaken. God will sustain him and guide him through whatever difficulties he faces in this life. God will grant him wisdom and direction to know what to do when he faces hard decisions. 
All David needs to do is simply turn to God to seek his counsel. That is why he's determined to set the Lord before him. That's why he's having the Lord sit at his right hand. In a sense, he's saying he wants to seek God's God's counsel over all other counsel. Because he knows that God will provide him strength and wisdom and the ability to persevere through trials and difficult decisions. That doesn't mean things will not be tremendously difficult at times. You might feel that. There, there might be times in your life when you feel like you are in total darkness and you are alone, and God's counsel is nowhere to be found. I've been there myself. I know what that experience is like. But persevere. Nevertheless, if you continue to call out to him and seek his counsel, he will provide it in time. You have a counselor who is good and loving. And the counsel that is given is given because... And that counsel is given because he gives us himself first and foremost. That is clearly what David desires most in this psalm. And it was something that Jonathan Edwards actually understood very, very well. He articulates it really well. And his thoughts are worth mentioning to you guys. Um, I've been reading a book recently called Formed for the Glory of God. And it's about Jonathan Edwards and uh, the way that he viewed the Christian life. And... He talks about spiritual disciplines, and um, when talking about seeking God's counsel in the spiritual disciplines, it's interesting to know that Edwards actually preferred not to use the term spiritual disciplines. He actually preferred to use the term means of grace. Um, That was because he saw practices such as as prayer, uh, Bible intake, fasting, the spiritual disciplines that you guys think about, are primarily means of communing with God. Uh, He saw the disciplines as ways to posture ourselves to receive him, not just his blessings. And that perspective is huge. And sometimes we don't even see how subtly we can turn ourselves away from that in our pursuit of the spiritual disciplines. Think about it. Oftentimes, we approach the spiritual disciplines as ways to help us combat combat sin or to to learn more, for instance. Uh, We want to feel less anxious, so we pray more. Uh, We want to have a better understanding of something like substitutionary atonement. Uh, So we read our Bibles more. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong. I really do believe that if you pray and you read your Bible more, you will most likely become a less anxious person and you will understand substitutionary atonement better. However, those things should not be why you are doing that in the first place. You should pray because you get to commune with a God who can alleviate your worries and fears because he is sovereign over your life and because he cares about each and every detail in it. You should read your Bible because it is an opportunity to commune with the God who has revealed to you the magnificent way that he has decided to ransom and save you. When you are reading your Bible and praying, do it because you want to receive him because you want to spend time with and learning from him. Think about 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now this verse astounds me. This has astounded me for years, just reflecting on it. 
what John is saying here is that God is so glorious and holy that simply by beholding him, we are sanctified. That when Christ returns, just by beholding him, that is how we will be glorified. He promises that we will be glorified. That will happen just by setting our eyes on him. That is how incredible he is. That just by seeing him, we are utterly changed for the better. We are totally different people because of it. The sanctification and blessings will definitely come if you seek God. You are setting your eyes on him when you are practicing the spiritual disciplines. So those things are going to happen. You are going to be sanctified and blessed through that experience. But again, don't cherish the gifts more than the time you get to spend with the giver of them. Now, David conveys that sentiment abundantly throughout this psalm. It's the thread, in a sense, that he weaves throughout the entire passage. And we'll see it climaxes here in the last couple verses when he gets to talk about how God is his delight. So let's look at that. We'll look at verse 9 first. He says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Do you see the affection that he has for God in that? Do you see how he delights in him? David is trying to convey that every aspect of his being, both in body and soul, are moved by God. All of him is rejoicing in and enjoying God. And why? Note the therefore in this passage. His delight in God is due to everything mentioned before this verse. Because God is his refuge, because he is his inheritance to be prized above all else, and because he is his counselor who offers up himself as encouragement, as strength, as guidance to David. David's delight in God is built upon the foundation of everything that has been mentioned up until this point. All of those things. Someone who has experienced God as David has cannot help but enjoy and delight in him. David's affection was stirred such that he was crying out to God for preservation in the first verse, but at this point, he's now joyfully confident in him. But notice that it even goes further than David just trusting God that he will provide for his earthly well-being. He's not just joyful because God is taking care of his earthly existence. Look with me at verse 10. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's explaining his reason for joy even further here. David is rejoicing because he knows God will not leave him in death. David's hope and joy in this psalm is rooted in the fact that his greatest pleasure to be found is in God, and he will never be separated from God, even in death. David's delight is in God so much that he never wants to be parted from communion with him, ever. He wants to experience God's fellowship and presence eternally. David's fear, the reason he originally cried out to God for preservation, was not necessarily rooted in his fear of death specifically. It was rooted in his fear that death would separate him from God. This is the ultimate display of someone who really genuinely enjoys God. David exemplifies it. His concern about death is not due to death itself, 
but because he fears the absence of God. He does not want to be parted from his Lord. That is what we see him, see him conveying in his concluding verses. And that's where he goes in his concluding verse, verse 11. Look with me at that one. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know what David speaks of here? Have you experienced this reality yourself? Such pleasure and such joy? As uh, Psalm 34 verse 8 says, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? God's holiness and perfection is such that simply being with him induces the greatest pleasure and joy that one could possibly experience. His beauty is utterly astounding. His vastness is breathtaking. His glory is marvelous beyond compare. God is such that we could receive no greater reward from him than just a chance to be with him. Think about Moses and how he longed to see God. Moses knew the same delight in God that we see David exhibiting here in this psalm. Sadly, though, in so many ways, these realities are, in a sense, unfathomable to us. We cannot even begin to imagine the degree of pleasure that God will bring us when we finally stand before him, let alone experience that in this life. I imagine some of you might be thinking right now, I've never been this pleased with God before as we see in this psalm. I've never delighted in him like that. Maybe you would recognize that you haven't really had any delight in him at all. Your affections are not for him. You just intellectually understand him. And you know what? You might be right in some of these regards. Perhaps not to, you haven't experienced this pleasure, this delight to this degree. But hopefully, but truly, if you have been born again, you have had glimpses of this reality You have seen and experienced his goodness and love enough to want more of it. So pursue that. The reality is that our sin dims and taints our vision of God. It actually limits the degree of pleasure that we can experience in him in this life. It's like there's a capacity that we cannot cannot go past, even though there is so much more to experience. That is honestly one of the things that I hate the most about my sin. I hate, I hate so much how much my apathy, my sin, my idolatry of other things causes me to become disinterested in God. I hate how it is so easy to seek after him, but really not have a whole lot of interest in him. I don't please, I'm not pleased in him. I don't desire him all the time. I hate so much that that is true. I want that to be over. I can't wait, though, when I get to finally stand before God and have every desire in my body and soul perfectly and fully satisfied in him. One day, the haze that is over our eyes will be pulled back and we will see him in his utter brilliance and we will marvel for all of eternity at who he is and we will delight in him more and more. We will be free of the sin that constrains us. Our capacity to appreciate him will no longer be hindered and limited by that sin. It will be incredible, you guys. 
We don't even know what that's going to look like yet, but we just can know that it will be so incredible. The way that I kind of like to think about it is we will be like plants in the, like, grass or in trees in the presence of the noonday sun being continually nourished and grown by the radiance of its light that will be us just basking in the glory of god it will be incredible and i don't exaggerate when i say that it will be a pleasure of both body and soul david was right in realizing that death would not separate him from god both spiritually and physically though Psalm 16 is quoted twice in the New Testament. It's quoted by both Peter and Paul during sermons that they gave in the book of Acts. Um, And I actually want us to look at those. Um, So if you would, turn with me to Acts 2. We're going to look at verses 24 through 32. So let me read Acts 2, verses 24 through 32. So this is Peter speaking. Chet just preached on this not too long ago, actually. Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and that we all are witnesses. So we see that. Now turn to Acts 13 and we're gonna look at verses 32 through 39. So Acts 13, verses 32 through 39. This is Paul speaking. He says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man for forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Do you see what Peter and Paul are saying here in these passages? They're conveying the same idea. They're saying that this psalm was true of David 
but he was not the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of it. It ultimately points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. David spoke of himself as the Holy One who would not see corruption, but truly the Holy One would be Christ centuries later. Peter and Paul root Psalm 16 in in the resurrection of Christ. The comforts and truths that David talks about here are only possible because Jesus died on the cross but was raised from the dead. If he was not raised from the dead, then what hope would we have of the same thing? Because he was raised from the dead and glorified and not corrupted, however, in him we can hope for the same fate if we are united with him by faith. And that is a resurrection, not of just soul, but of body as well. Jesus passed through Sheol or Hades or just death, the grave. Those terms are all interchangeable in this sense. He passed through that unscathed. Therefore, so will we if we are united in him. Through Jesus' resurrection, our greatest threat and concern has been destroyed. Death will not separate us from the goodness and love of God. Because Jesus faced and passed through death into bodily resurrection and returned to the presence of the Father, we can hope for exactly the same thing through our faith in him. And Jesus himself communicates that same idea and message Think about it. He told the Sumerian woman in John 4 that anyone who drinks of him will no longer thirst. In John 5, he told the 5,000, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Notice how Jesus appeals to the senses of the people he spoke of. The bodily resurrection that we will experience in him will please our whole being. I think, like, yes, Jesus is being figurative in a sense here, but he's also speaking to the fact that our senses, our body, our delights, all of them will be satisfied in him. And also notice that he equates coming to him and believing in him. Those terms are synonymous, he says in in this passage in John 5, verse 35. He says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. A true believer does not simply believe in Jesus like it's an intellectual assent. Someone who is born again is someone whose soul has been changed so that our affections are turned towards Christ and we want to go to him. He becomes our delight. We want to go to him, and when we receive him, our hunger and thirst is satisfied. So, you have to ask yourself, do you delight in Jesus Christ? He is the image of the invisible God, as scripture says. He is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you see that all that God is for us, Christ is for us? Jesus is our refuge and our inheritance, our counselor and our delight. Even more than that, It was only because of his sacrifice on the cross that we are even able to receive him as any of those things. God would be none of that to us without Christ's sacrifice. It is through him, through Jesus, that we can experience the presence of the Father. Delight in him because he is who you are designed to enjoy. The Jesus who is the object of our faith is so much more than the one who 
merely forgives us of our sins, removes our guilt, and saves us from hell. And I think it's funny to say that he's not merely those things because those things alone are unbelievable that he would go to that length for us. But he is even more than those things. That's not just the full picture. He's also the ultimate treasure of our hearts. He's the holy one who is to be desired above all else. Our desire for the blessings that we receive in him should not surpass our desire for him as our greatest gift. All of those blessings are precious and good as a result of them allowing us to receive him first and foremost and to experience him more deeply through them. So what separates you from God? Is there sin in your life that you cling to instead of Christ? Sin shrinks our vision of him. It doesn't clarify it. Repent of the sins that weaken your enjoyment of God. Turn from them. Turn to him. Turn from it. Turn from those sins knowing that they keep you from the one who is holy and far better for you. As the Beatitude says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Do you want to see him? Yearn to see God and turn towards purity. I want to finish by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis, who quotes, who sums up this idea really well in um, The Weight of Glory. He says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is the, that promised reward that the gospels speak of. We settle for far less when we could have him. Let's not do that, church. Let's enjoy him. As I said in the beginning, enjoy him. Ask him to open your eyes of faith to behold his splendor. Delight in him. Be in awe of him. Enjoy him, and in so doing, bring him glory. Again, that is our chief end, is it not? Live joyfully with Christ, knowing that he will eternally satisfy you in body and soul. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for these words that you have given us through the psalmist David. We thank you for the reminders that he has provided us about how precious how good, how glorious, magnificent, majestic you are. You are so many things. Your perfections are incomprehensible to us. God, I pray that this morning and in every day of our lives from this point forward, you help us open our hearts to understand your perfections, to know you just a little bit better more and more, and in so doing that we would enjoy you more and more each day. Let us be a church. Let Redeemer Church be a body of believers who are always rejoicing, 
who are deeply joyful people, even amidst trial and difficulty, because we have you, because we can always turn to you as our refuge, as our inheritance, as our counselor and our delight. And especially now as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that the grandeur of Christ's perfection and love, the, the incredible fruit that he bore and the length that he went to die on the cross for us, as unworthy as we are, that we would comprehend that just a little bit more. Help us to delight in him and what he has done for us as we take the Lord's Supper now. God, we thank you that you have given us a savior, a mediator, a righteousness, and a treasure for us to live for. And we pray this in his name. Amen.